What is up, everyone, and welcome into episode 53 of the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike. My name is Mike Johnston from Mike'sLessons.com. My co-host will be joining us shortly is Mr. Mike Dawson, Managing Editor of Modern Drummer Magazine. You guys actually do that with me when I do it? I bet you do. I know it's repetitive, but I gotta say something. In this week's episode, we're gonna get to a ton of stuff. In our educational section, Mike and I will be talking about how to be creative on the drum set, and most importantly, how to practice being creative. Our featured artist this time is Mr. Larnell Lewis from the band Snarky Puppy. In our gear review section, Mike will be checking out the Tama Superstar Classic Kit. We're going to get to a bunch of your listener questions, and as always, we'll give you our picks of the week. So let's get started. You say that part too? So let's get started. Is this actually episode 53? Did I get that right on the rundown? Yes, it is. Sweet. We are back on track. Let's, Back on track. Let's hope. Uh, yeah, until I uh, fly to Ireland on Sunday, and then we are all wacky again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, How's life, buddy? It's going good, man. Um, a couple of things I thought I'd share that were funny. I um, I played a big outdoor show on Saturday down in, okay. in Maryland, and the, the bassist couldn't make it, so they got a sub, and the original sub was going to be Gary Granger who you might know from the John Schofield band with Dennis Chambers, oh. the bass oh, player yeah, yeah. on yeah. those classic Dennis Chambers videos. Well, Gary ended up getting called to do a session in New York, so he he bailed on it. But then he brought in Scott Ambush, who is another amazing bass player. He's in Spyro Gyra. Oh, wow, yeah, yeah, with uh, Joel Rosenblatt, or Joel used to be in that Yeah, band. now it's, right. it's someone else. I can't remember his name, but he's a younger guy, but... You know, a, a legendary kind of contemporary jazz, smooth jazz, whatever oh. you want to call it. Amazing bass player. This was like a straight-up country, Americana, classic really? rock kind of thing. So we go up to play. It's a big stage, huge production. You know, I mean, monster sound. We get 40 seconds into the first song, and the skies just opened up. And just, oh. like, monsoon rain, and they just pulled the plug. So we... We hadn't even gotten to the first chorus yet, and the sound guy just went, show's over, folks. (laughs) Wait, and then it never came back? You never played more? No, thankfully, about an hour later, we were able to get through like a a half-hour version of our show. Wow. It was was amazing. It was absolutely hilarious. So here I am, like, excited to play with Scott, who I've known him forever, but I never actually played with him. It was like first time playing, and, and as soon as we started playing, it was like instant lock. Like this is going to be fun, and then right. <laughs> shows over. <laughs> so, uh, when you play with a, a bass player of that caliber, do you get in your head at all about how your drumming is complementing their bass? I mean, do you think at all, or do you just try to play drums and ignore the fact that he's done a billion albums and every gig in the world? No, it didn't really. I mean. For me, my role is always to just make everyone else feel comfortable, no matter who it is. So it, sure. it's always serving up steady tempo and just a good feel and making sure I'm playing the arrangements correctly. So it doesn't really matter who it is. And, and luckily with this band, every bass player, it's been like an instant connection. Um, but cool. he came, we talked before the gig, and I mean, he was a last minute sub, so he didn't really, really know the tunes. So he was actually relying on me a little bit more, which is gotcha. an interesting role reversal. He was, you know, like. I'm just going to be looking for looking you first. You for yeah. yeah, but yeah. he—that's I mean, no, great. He killed it, and and it was just a lot of fun to finally play with him because he was like he is like the hero of my hometown. Like he's the the best bassist of that area. And wow, I used to go see him play like every Sunday night at the free concert series. And the dude is a ridiculous bass player, Scott Ambush. So cool. So That's to so finally cool, play with him and not be intimidated, not be like, yeah. nervous. it was like, let's just go play and have fun. And I don't think he gets to play like loud rock and roll type stuff very often. Sure. So you could see him grinning when the, the subs kicked in and it was like, 
whoa, I haven't heard oh. my bass like that in a long time. <laughs> oh, that's so cool, man. <laughs> that's that great, fun. man. Yeah, that was fun. That and um, I, I'm playing this like a smooth jazz gig tomorrow. It's today, Thursday. Yeah, tomorrow, Friday. And I re reaffirmed that the most difficult drumming for me is very quiet, very precise drumming. Oh man, more difficult than anything I've ever had to do because we're doing like we're doing Steely Dan arrangements. We're doing uh, we're doing Spyro Driver songs, like these really kind of tight fusion jazz stuff, but it's acoustic, and I'm having to play really, really light. I love it. I think it's really, really hard. It's really easy to kind of slip with the time when you play that. Yeah, lightly. for sure. I, I mean, I think that's where bingo word Mark Juliana comes in. It's <laughs> like, how does he play like that so quiet? Yeah. I mean, when he's ripping in his solos, I can stand two feet away from him and not need earplugs. Yep. And it's uh, it's a it's a crazy thing. Well, uh, good luck to you. I, I'm glad I don't have to do that gig. Uh, <laughs> it'll be but, fun. Uh, we had rehearsal. No, it'll last be great. Night. It was fun. And, and you grow from it. How could that? How could that be a bad thing? Yeah, right? it puts me back. I mean, I played like that style all through college and stuff. So it was nice to kind of remind myself how difficult playing quiet. It's not really the most fun. It's not the most viscerally fun. But if you can really get into it, it's. I enjoy yeah. the challenge of can I. Can I play intensely? Can I play with emotion and not get above mezzo forte? All yeah, night. how do you? I mean, that's it's so much control. Yet yeah. you're trying to be expressive, and that's yeah. a really hard thing to do. To say, okay, I'm going to be as artistic as always, and I'm going to be me, but I'm going to be fully controlled. So yeah. that's awesome. I think that's great, man. Yeah, well, dude, I've got to give a uh, speech today. Uh, oh right, and so yeah, I'm, I'm kind of excited. It's uh, it's. I'm happy to talk about it now because since this podcast will come out tomorrow, I'm definitely not shamelessly promoting anything because it will have already happened when <laughs> right. people hear this. So I'm not saying, come on out tonight. <laughs> like, you already <laughs> missed it. But uh, yeah, it's in Sacramento. And uh, so our city, I'm sure all cities have a arts commission. So the Sacramento Arts Commission got a hold of me and asked if I would give a speech to local artists just teaching them any techniques that I knew for making a living from your passion and from your art. So I think the real goal is to get some of our artists to stop leaving our small town. And what happens is as soon as they get to a certain level with their art, the first thing they want to do is move to Los Angeles, move yeah. to Nashville, move to New York. And so it's it's just unnecessary. If you are truly passionate about your art – now, if you want to learn from the masters, then you kind of some, – sometimes you have to go where they are. But you can make a living in any town that you live in without a doubt. And so I want to show them because I've done it in Los Angeles, which was a big town. And that has the challenges of there's too many people here that are great. How do I make a living? How do I stick out in this town? I've done it in Sacramento, which I had the edge of the fact that I grew up here. So I knew people. So it was a little easier to make. I think it's easiest to make it in your hometown because I was able to draw from my experiences and my gigs actually meant something here. And then I moved to San Luis Obispo, which was a town that I didn't know a single soul. No one there had ever heard of my lame little rock band. All they cared about was Sublime. And it was just this beach town. And I had to make a living there. And I had almost no money when I went there. So uh, I wanna, I'm want i going to teach everybody these techniques and let them understand just the real data behind being an artist. I, one thing that I found incredible is one4 that is the percentage of artists in the workforce in America. 1.4. 1.4. Yep. And that includes graphic designers. Most of those are graphic designers. So professionally huh. employed artists make up 1.4 of the workforce in America. 
seventy percent, a little more than seventy percent, live in either California or New York. Hmm. So it's insane. So it's like you don't need to leave Sacramento or New Jersey or you know what I mean. It's like you you can be fine, but you're going to have to be passionate about it. Uh, you're going to have to put in the time. You're going to have to also, I think more than anything, you're going to have to realize what your own dream is, and that's probably the hardest thing for an artist because. The dream is set forth by your family and your friends and the people that see, oh, you're painting. Someday you'll be in a gallery. And it's like, okay, well, that's just one of the 9,000 dreams that are out there for painters. Mm. Uh, So I think realizing your dream makes it a little bit easier rather than just going down a path saying, I'm going to be a painter. It's like, well, it's very broad. What do you want to do with this? And let's narrow it, narrow it, narrow it. And then it makes it a lot easier to achieve that dream. So anyway, so I'm doing that tonight and it'll give me, I'm going to play a little bit. So it'll give me a chance to work out some of my solo stuff before I fly off to Ireland on Sunday for the 21 Drums Drum Camp. We had a huge shakeup yesterday, (laughs) uh, which was one of our teachers, uh, Robert Sput Seawright, actually couldn't go. And I'm not sure the details behind it, but... I think there's some stuff going on with him being able to travel. I don't know if it's a snarky puppy thing or what. But anyways, uh, so we had to scramble and get a replacement. And who are you going to replace like Robert Sput Seawright with? Because he's just <sighs> such an incredible human, not to mention an incredible player. But uh, <laughs> the, the guy that's helping me put this on said that he was going to make a T-shirt that said, if everything goes bad, just call Mike Johnston and he'll call Adele's drummer. And that's literally what I did. (laughs) The first call I put in was to Adele's drummer, Ash Sowen, and I just was like, bro, we're in some trouble. What What do you think? And he was just so excited to do it. He's like, oh, and what's great, for the people that aren't signed up for the camp, no big deal for you guys, but for the people that are coming to the clinic that we're giving in Dublin, that's gonna and that's going to be on Monday. Let's see here. I be, I believe okay, this happened. It'll be Monday the 15th. So Monday, August 15th, myself, Mark Juliana and Ash Sowen will be giving a clinic together at the Button Factory in Dublin, Ireland. So I'm really excited because I've never got a chance to work with Ash. I follow him on Instagram. He's one of my favorite drummers. His, he, I mean, the stuff he's done on the last two Adele records are incredible. So I, I'm really, really excited to get a chance to hang with him and learn from him. So it should be a lot of fun. But it was a scramble for sure. Yeah, that's great that you got him. I mean, he's he's definitely uh, one of my favorite guys over there. I mean, he's, he's been on so many records, so many really great records. Yeah, yeah. I, I went through his discography yesterday, and it was actually sickening. It, it was just like going through Matt Chamberlain's discography. I yeah. was like, wait, he's on that, and he's on that, and he's on that? Um yeah, it was kind of crazy. So the Adele records, uh, he's on Kung Fu Panda 3. Uh, let's see. Where oh, he's on, uh, the, he's on the voice and, and the British version. Well, yeah, of he's, the he's, the, he's the UK drummer for the voice. That's the whole point of this camp is the point is that you get three people with very different perspectives. Because I could have called Benny or maybe Annika or maybe Yost or, or JP. And we all are obviously different, but I wanted like polar opposites. So yeah. now we've got the educator. We've got the New York jazz drummer, and we've got the guy that plays with the superstars. What is it like to come up? So you and I talk all the time about coming up with a groove for a song, and Ash was telling me yesterday what it's like to come up with a groove for a song when Adele is sitting five feet away from you. (laughs) And he's like, it's very different than somebody sending you a demo. Um, But yeah, he's played with Seal, Rumor, Billy Idol, uh, Celine Dion, Cher, uh, it's his, yeah, his discography is disgusting. So, but he's a great guy. And I think once again, we're trying to give these students 
different perspectives. Instead of me being the dominant force and saying, this is the way it was done. This is how I do it. You should do it this way. I want to say, look, here are three totally different approaches. And we all ended up in a very similar place. And we all reached the goal, which is we're very happy with our professional lives. That's the real goal. It's not how fast you are. It's not how independent you are. It's not about your gigs. It's just, dude, are you happy? And when I talk to Mark, that dude is happy. He doesn't, he does, like, I just talked to him yesterday because we're figuring all this stuff out. And he just got off of like a world jazz tour with Schofield and Maldo. And he wasn't worn out. He wasn't telling me, like, oh, the grind. He was like, he was so pumped. And he was stoked. He's like, dude, I'm doing errands. I haven't done errands in two months. This is awesome. (laughs) Well, yeah, he just moved into a house and he has like a a clear sonic booth in his basement with a drum set in it. So I imagine he's like excited to. Get back in there, yeah, yeah. And Ash was like practicing at his windmill, and he's like, "Hey, mate, can't wait to get." You know, and I was that, like, "All right, let's. that studio is ridiculous, Bro, next level." That's unfair. That's unfair. <laughs> How are the neighbors? Oh, I'm in a windmill. There are none. What? Ah, you mean the sheep that live outside? Exactly. The jealousy factor, you know. And then like he was like, "Yeah, so sorry that we couldn't Facetime early." He, you know, he Facetimed me, and we he showed me around the windmill, and then. He was like, he's like, yeah, we just had a rehearsal. And I was like, I really wanted to be like, is we Adele? Like, does she come to your windmill? <laughs> but I just said, you know what? I just need you to be in Ireland on this date. And he was, he just, uh, I'm so excited to spend time with him because he was such a sweetheart. She so. takes a hot air balloon in and lands next to <laughs> I could totally imagine that. I could totally imagine that. Instead of a chauffeur, she's got a hot air balloonsman outside uh, with sandbags. Waiting. Elves, elves bring her stuff in. <laughs> <laughs> so rad. Oh, man. So, yeah. So when I talk to you uh, for the next episode, I will be in Ireland and uh, awesome. give you a report back from there. So, all right. Well, let's get into some education. I wanted to talk. So I've been I'm six camps deep now into the summer. And the the big theme for this year's camp is teaching people how to practice. So we have made each day of the camp becomes an elongated four stage practice method. I teach them stage one, non-creative. We work on it for an hour. Then I teach them something creative stage two. Then we have two hours of main focus where they're learning something. And then we have an hour of musical application where they're applying all of this stuff to music. Well, one of these stages is drastically having more issues than the other stages, and that would be stage two creative. So mm-hmm. we've got the we've got drummers from all over the world here. I tell them something to do that's non-creative. They crush it. Then I say, okay, we're going to create inside of this tiny set of parameters, and they all really struggle with it. And I identify with that because I'm part of it. One thing that I don't think they understand until they come to camp is the fact that you can actually practice being creative. It's not something where... If you don't have it, you just don't have it. Now, it would be nice to have it. So Ari Honig has it. Yeah. But I don't. Uh, so I have to practice it. So I thought maybe you and I could just talk a little bit about things that we do when we sit down at the kit that would allow us and our listeners to try to practice being creative. I mean, do you have anything or in currently or in the past that has put you into that creative zone? Um, usually a couple of different things. Um, I always remember a conversation I had with a friend of mine who's a tattoo artist, and he okay. was talking about um, his apprenticeship because I was hanging out with him a lot when he was – he's an incredible visual artist, but then he decided to become a tattoo artist. So he had to do the two-year apprenticeship uh, okay. situation. So he was always giving me reports on this is what I had to do this week. And the one that stuck with me is that he his, his master uh, artist made him draw 100 versions of every assignment. 
So you're going to do a skull. Go home and, and draw 100 very different skull tattoos. Wow. Which I thought was mind-blowing that, I mean, he had to do it all in like a day, too. So just bang them out. Do one, do another one, do it from this angle, do it with this lighting, do it with this context, do this style, do this color. Like every, every whatever came to his mind, you know, he had to, he had to bring him in and, and show him to his, his master. So I think of like, here's the beat to Cold Sweat. Go home and come up with 100 versions of it. Whatever it is, you can change this. You can change the orchestration. You can change the pulse. You can add notes. You can subtract notes. You can do it on a big. But kit, it has a. Whole. There is a theme. You're not just jamming drums. It started with Cold Sweat or whatever. Right? Whatever. No. It no. Yeah. Be. I mean, obviously, yeah. whatever it is. But it's not Cold Sweat into. Now I'm in nine eight, that, and it doesn't relate to Cold Sweat. No, it's, it's not got the nine eight version of Cold Sweat. You've got to just, trace. You've got to at least explain how you got from Cold Sweat to this right. variation. Absolutely, because there's going yeah. to be something abstract that's going to just come to mind, but that's still being creative. So I'm thinking maybe Cold Sweat has a quarter note ride, so I'm going to not do that. Maybe I'm going to abandon that entirely, and it becomes a whole different whole different groove, but you can still explain your process. Absolutely. So that's one way I do it. I, I uh, Either it's a, a groove out of a book or a groove off a record I really like, or I'll just take one little simple idea. Like I heard Mickey Roker does um, – he's a great jazz drummer from the – 50s and 60s one of his signature sounds is he hits the snare drum and bass drum at the same time like that's how he accents notes sure. in a phrase yeah so that was one of my creative explorations like what can i do with that how can yeah. i how can i phrase with with that one sound um so it's, it's all similar to that for me it's just taking one very specific parameter and saying where does it take me and then let it go wherever it wants to go as long as I can then trace how I got there. Yeah, I think the parameter is the key. That's the whole point. If I I mean, can you imagine in my camps if every day at noon I said, okay, guys, one hour of being creative, go. Like, <laughs> yeah. it'd be dead silence. No one would even know how to start. So the parameter is the key for you guys that are listening. You have to start with something. Now, when, it, when you hear the words being creative, you think – abandon tempo and pulse and abandon it all and just create a, a masterpiece on the drum set. I, I really don't see it that way at all. I think there has to be something that's there. There's a pulse in mind. There is a tempo. And then I put in some more parameters. So one of my parameters for the students is be creative inside of a groove setting, but the groove has to start with a unique sticking, something that takes you out of your norm. So maybe uh, kick right, left, kick so you have four notes kick right left kick the right left are on the hi-hat and so that gives you one e and a uh. and then from there you're on your own so you have one e and a two three four one e and a two three four one e and a two three four and, and you're going through these different things but you're you're starting the groove with a sticking pattern that isn't normal for you uh maybe you change that to something else the other thing that I work on a lot with the students is taking short groupings of notes, maybe four notes, right, left, left, kick, uh, accent the right, ghost note the lefts. So you have right, left, left, kick, right, left, left, kick, little peak, valley, peak. Run those through the different subdivisions and the different rates of speed. So rate is a big part of that. Mm -hmm. And then just see, can you keep that together against a pulse? You know, if you take that four note combination and play it as eighth note triplets, can you really feel one and a two and a three and a four and a one and a two and a three and a four and a one and a, and can you feel that polyrhythm going over the bar line? Can you keep time with your left foot? 
And then once you start to go through those different rates, be creative with that one thing. Okay, you have right, left, left kick. Let's explore, like you said, the orchestration. Let's explore the rate of speed. What, what happens when you play right, left, left kick and put in a 16th note rest after every grouping? So you oh, keep yeah. shifting it forward in time and be as creative as you can. And I think those are, those are really jazz concepts. If I got anything from the, the short time that I studied jazz, especially – and maybe you know more than, than me on this. But some of the things that I got from studying Elvin were taking fairly simple ideas, but I just moved them through time yeah. uh, and changed the rate. And so it wasn't like a Buddy Rich style at all where I was blazing. It was very simple things. But I just was starting them in new places and orchestrating them differently and accenting them differently. But I could trace them back to this one simple idea. Yeah, I mean that his one of his signature thing was to go from triplets to sixteenth notes, but keep the the basic figure intact. So it'd be right if it was like a two snares and a bass drum as triplets, then that would become a hemiola if you transferred over to sixteenth notes. Sixteenth, yeah, which is, makes him have that kind of like out of time, discombobulated feel. But yeah, it's usually and, all basic subdivisions. He's not doing a lot of like crazy fives and things like that. Right, and the other thing too is in in depending on what he's doing with his left foot, something like that going from or eighth note triplets of right left kick into sixteenth notes of right left kick is going to sound one way against a quarter note pulse on your left foot. It's going to sound actually quite different against two and four on your left foot yeah. because the spacing of the pulse is so – it's doubled. And so it really allows for that, that breath to happen in there. And then if you had right left kick – Moving around the drum set in two subdivisions. You don't have to learn quintuplets or septuplets like Mike said. You don't even have to learn 32nd notes. Just eighth note triplets and 16th notes. Then it, what is right-left kick equal to you dynamically? Right-left kick could be accented right, ghosted left. And then it could be accented left, ghosted right. So now you're getting right-left kick, right-left kick, right-left kick, and it's popping the upbeats. Yeah. Then one thing that I do with my students is make them do the right and left loud, and then the next right and left are ghosted. So it's right-left kick, right-left kick, right-left kick. Yeah. Right, left, alternate, right, left, kick, right, left, kick, right, left, kick, right, left, kick, right. Now we have a whole different thing happening in right, left, kick. Now it's got this rhythm. These hidden rhythms are inside the dynamics. So once you just take three simple notes and start being truly creative with it, things can really happen. The other thing, the last thing I'll give you is what we do here because it's a, a torture device. It's called the quarter note challenge. Uh, stole it from Terry Angoli when he was playing with uh, Christian McBride. And we, our students have to create a drum solo around a quarter note pulse other than their left foot. And it's usually their left hand cross stick. Mm. So you cannot add one extra note with that left hand. It's just constant quarter notes. And it, dude, I mean, it's two notes in before their left hand starts buggy whipping around. And I'm like, hey, 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 hey. So because we're pretty used to keeping time. Or it might even be something... You know, it depends on who you are as a drummer, whatever you're used to keeping time with. For me, if somebody said play a solo over eighth notes on your bass drum, it's like, no, I, yeah. I, I wouldn't be able to because I'm so linear and I'm so syncopated with my bass drum that I would have a really hard time doing that 80s rock and roll drum solo thing. Yeah. That would be yeah. really hard for me. So, yeah. all right. Anything to add to that or does that sound good to you? Well, the other, I mean, that's mostly we're talking about creative practice. Yeah. Um, as far as creative in a musical situation, a lot of times I will put on a bass line or something on my I'll either a loop or I'll program something and I'll I'll just come up with as many variations of a, of an accompaniment to that as possible. Yeah. So that's creating more in a, a musical dynamic application. 
So like I'll, I'll, every eight bars or so, I'll say, okay, what's what's the next variation? And just keep changing, keep changing, yeah. keep changing. Go for stuff that, that sounds ridiculous. Go for stuff that's completely counterintuitive to what that is. Go for com- straight on unisons. I mean, that's you can do. That's completely wide open to whatever. But that for me is a more of a creative, yeah, creative aesthetics. I mean, you're kind of developing yeah. your creativity as an accompanist, accompanist, or as a rhythm section, or because anything works. You can make anything work. I mean, if the bass is playing sixteenth notes and you play triplets, that can work as long as you do it on purpose and you have a and as yeah, and as long as the person that you're doing it with is hoping for that, uh-huh. right? But I think the the goal in that situation, and I do the same thing, is I want to give whoever I'm playing with, I want to give them a kaleidoscope to look through. And it's like, here, here's all the options. I, I'm happy with all of these, and I'm comfortable with all of these because I've practiced them. What what are you feeling? And yeah. being able to, like you said, if somebody's playing straight 16ths, being able to play half notes and really sink into them and just care about every single note. I get to play on one and I get to play on three. Right. Everything's good. And then and then the busiest 32nd note groove with a few modulations in it possible and still feel just as comfortable. And then obviously anything in between. So, yeah, yeah. and by the way, I saw that uh the the loop video you posted, man, and that's that's awesome. I don't know if you saw I posted one from uh Pete Lockett's Drum Jam app that oh, I used. Yeah, I don't that's have the that only app. That's the only thing I had on my iPad at the moment. I just watched the Aaron Sterling video, saw your thing, and I was like, man, I'm going to make a loop. And it was the only thing I had that had anything melodic in it. But the one thing I I didn't do, and it's different. It's not making a loop. You actually record it in the moment, but it doesn't play it back. You can just export it to yourself. Okay. It's it's hard to explain. but, But anyways, one thing I didn't do is I didn't take out the percussion. So I did have a timekeeper in there. You were doing it, and there was just (laughs) (laughs) it's like you are the timekeeper so i i think that's a um i was doing it for fun you were actually trying to get better at the drums yeah well the goal yeah because the well no i mean obviously i was just having fun as well but the goal was to have a keyboard part that only changes every measure or two measures depending on how you count the pulse and then and then rather than subdividing the groove down to the 16th note triplet, I was saying, I'm only going to play quarter notes for a while. And then can I yeah. maintain that? I mean, you I think keep it, that time. Yeah, it might have been like 120 beats per minute, but the keyboard was only playing every two measures. No, it wasn't right. even, and I was playing at halftime, so I was playing even slower subdivisions. And it took a while. It probably took a good five minutes for me to not be fishing around just to play a basic beat, but... Right. Something happens in your mind when when you get locked into it, the groove that just started happened to me in the past year or two, where it's like I can't screw it up now. Like it's just so locked that that's so cool. Until I mean, one thing I did learn because whenever I play triplets, they rush. Oh yeah, yeah, every single like like slow triplets, like not not sixteen note triplets, but slow triplets. Every single time I ended on the downbeat fat too fast. Mm-hmm. Which is a weird, yeah. weird uh, phenomenon. Those realizations are so important to find out about yourself because, especially when I'm dealing with my students, I have to let them know I don't care that you rush or you drag. I care that you know whether you rush or you drag, so you yeah. can attenuate it. Like I, I don't, I'm not like oh loser came in early. <laughs> I'm just I'm looking. Did you come in early four times in a row so that I know that you rush, yeah. or do you just come in different every time because you're overcompensating and then you just have bad time? The other thing that's really important, and maybe 30 years deep into your drumming, you're finally able to do this. When you do finally hit that groove, 
it's really hard not to freak yourself out about it. Like, it's working, it's working. And yeah, then, then you, just then you fall get right off. off the balance beam. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, Shiza. Yeah, it's, it, that can be tough, man. And, and I go through that because I play on, if I'm going to be on an electronic kit or electronic percussion device, I'm going to be doing something very constructive. I'm not going to be just wanking around. And so I'll usually use on the Yamaha DTX kits, they have just a, a gap click. And I'm always surprised at, at the 16th note triplet. If I'm improvising one bar of groove with the click and then the fill is improvised, the 16th note triplet stuff always comes in early. I rush it. And then my 32nd notes land right on the downbeat. So it's just huh. funny how much more comfortable I am. So it's not a rate of speed thing. I mean, the speed doesn't mess with it. It's just this one subdivision, I think. And I don't think I rush the whole fill. I'd like to really put it on some sort of uh, – what's that pad that we've been using? The oh, beatnik? The, uh, the beatnik, yeah. Uh, yeah, because I don't think I'm rushing the fill. I think I'm rushing the last f- five or six notes of the fill thinking that I was dragging. Yeah, that's quite possible. You know possible. what I mean? Yeah. I'm going like, perfect time, perfect – no, this isn't right. And, I just, <laughs> and then I come in early and I'm like, ah, man, you pulled your parachute too early. Just – just float down. So, <laughs> do you subdivide in your head? Do you do you keep anything going? Not not while I'm playing, but I do heading up to it. So if I'm grooving and I know that this improvisation is going to be based in 16th note triplets, I'll start singing right before it happens, just to yeah. predetermine so that I don't, or especially 32nd notes. I don't want to just think, well, I know they're pretty fast. Let's give it a go. I'm thinking, but yeah, I don't I don't do that while I'm actually playing. Do you? It just it depends. Lately, I've been finding myself um, humming either the bass part or the whatever yep. the rhythm is going, and and be paying attention to the um, the length of the notes. So yeah. actually, if it's a quarter note bass part, I'm actually humming the entire length of the quarter note. Yeah, not just that pop. seems to be really helping because for it's just, I have a hard time like thinking sixteenth notes and then not playing like a robot like it's right i need that i need that mental space to kind of be yeah a little more open but they're all you know all the techniques i've tried them all definitely subdividing helps but lately it's just been a natural thing where i'm just finding myself like kind of grunting the parts yeah no it's funny i I used to make fun of all the uh who's it uh is it wayne shorter no uh, uh who was it that we were watching a video of me. It was just grunting through the whole thing. Um, oh, Keith Jarrett? Keith Jarrett, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that kind of stuff. Or, But Herbie does it, too. You can hear yeah. Herbie just Elvin does the whole it thing. a lot, yeah. Yeah, and then now it's like it makes a little more sense. And, yep. And it's funny, like, I'm we're, we film each other so much in this world that we're in right now. We film ourselves so much that I'm a little more self-conscious than I should be. Sometimes it is nice to just be like, you know what? This works for me. Screw it. I, I don't yeah. care what my face looks like. We just had a student here. God, he was such a monster drummer. We had an advanced camp. And monster drummer, Jared Gibson, and I was really excited to work with him because I've actually been a fan of his drumming for a long time. But he, like, really makes some faces and chews <laughs> on his tongue on every – and it's, like, it's crazy what's happening with his face. But then it's, like, yeah, but close your eyes, man. Like, the, the dude is so in and yeah. doesn't care what you think about his face. It's, like – Sometimes you gotta let go, man. But yeah. I saw my I, uh, I saw my pinky flying out on my latest video, <laughs> the the metric modulation video. But I'm like, yes. you know what? I was going for a sound, and that's just what happened. What I it was, took? I mean, 
sound trumps yeah. all. I was going for a more kind of relaxed sound, and I didn't even realize it, but I mean, I was full-on, like, wine-tasting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just going <laughs> full-on Austin Powers. Uh, man, I have, I have one lick that is yeah. impossible to keep my pinky in, and it's the six-stroke roll when I'm just blazing that around the kit. It shoots out on, like, the sixth stroke. <laughs> it's so weird. And it's like, and if I clamp it down, it clamps down my whole hand. But it's it's like you know what screw it I'm just letting it happen. But yeah, but not, every time I robots. upload it, every time it goes up on social media, I'm like, and eh, 28 seconds from now there will be a comment about my pinky. I'm well aware. <laughs> you know you are a drum teacher, and it'd be really uh, good if you could practice proper technique before you upload a video. It's like yes, thank you. Yeah, I mean I get I'm aware that. of all of this. I get that. But if all you're worried about is having all four fingers in contact with the stick 24 seven, then your priorities how? are really messed up. Really messed up. And how <laughs> stiff is your stick going to be? Like, <laughs> what? Hmm. Anyways, <laughs> what? <laughs> you can edit that out. Holy mackerel! I think we should talk about Larnell Lewis, Mike. Okay, uh, get mean, your I, head out of the gutter. I think that Freudian slip was so accurate in many different ways. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how, I'm so happy that I'm wearing a gray shirt, so it mutes down how red my face is right now. Dear Lord. But you know what? Out. Better better for it to happen here than to happen during the live broadcast today. That's fine. Yeah, this, right. We can edit this. Uh, Lauren Hell Lewis, he's pretty good. Yeah, so Pulled the uh, the September issue is out now, and we've got the Snarky Puppy trio of drummers on the cover. Yes, yes. I, thought, I think that's it's probably news to some people that there's actually three guys who, who handle the drum chair. And they're, I think they're all three on the new record. So we got JT... Thomas, we got Sput, and Larnell Lewis. So, yeah, we're talking about Larnell this Man. week. And they're so unique. It's it's crazy that they didn't, you know, and I don't know if Mike is in charge of this, uh, the bass player. I don't know how they ended up with these three guys, but you would think, let me get somebody that can play Sput's parts, note for note. And then if we need a third guy, let me get a guy that can play Sput's parts note for note. Yeah. But each guy brings such – I mean, as a drummer, you're always – when somebody says, hey, Snarky's coming to town, the first thing you ask is who's on drums. Yeah. Because it's it's in a great way a different band depending on which guy plays. Larnell, though, that guy is all the R&B pocket you could ever want out of a professional R&B slash funk drummer, yet he can be – the the jazziest of the jazz. Yeah. I mean, and super creative. Speaking of creativity, yeah, yeah. Remember that the Pasic solo. I remember yeah. when you came back from Pasic, you were like, uh, Larnell blew me away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he 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 uses electronics in a seamless way to where you don't. I mean, he's hitting pads to trigger melodies and stuff. You think he's playing along to a track, but he's actually just improvising with some keyboard sounds, and he's got a pedal that might be playing a different sound. So he's he's able to kind of build this like full on composition on the fly flying in like Yamaha electronic stuff and samples and, and little one shots and might have been some loops definitely some like uh, African thumb piano samples and stuff I mean, it was really all music even when he was playing chops it was within, within a context of that's part of this composition in the moment yeah super yeah. musical he's one of the one of my favorite players right now he's he could definitely be a gunslinger but he's got the taste of of someone who just won't he just won't blaze constantly yeah i I, um sput had just gotten some of the new snarky record or maybe there were maybe it was demos i can't remember but we were listening to some of it last year at the 21 drums camp in ireland and 
he was like, check this out. This is Larnell. And he's like, I got to play this stuff live. I, I don't think I can play this. <laughs> I was like, wait, what? You're, but you're the dude. You know, and I mean, he was like, I, my foot can't go that fast. I can't do that. And oh, yeah. it was, you know, uh, and Larnell just really is that good. And I think also there's something about seeing him on a Yamaha that just brings back Vinny and Dave and Steve Gadd. Just it brings back that feeling that I had that like the classiest of the classy and the top, top, top pros. They just had that Yamaha logo and there was something yeah, about right. it that I was just like. Oh, that's some elite class that I'll never get to be a part of. And even I actually was a Yamaha artist for about two years in between DW stints, and I never felt like one of those Yamaha artists. It was like, thank you for my riding snare drum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Larnell's playing the uh, the Phoenix kit, the best of the best. Of and I mean, it just suits him. He's just a classy dude. Not to mention, I don't know if you've had any interactions with him, but he's a classy human being. Yeah, yeah. I we, mean, we interviewed him backstage at PASIC, and he couldn't have been more gracious and kind and giving. Yeah. He didn't have to, you know, none of these people have to spend any time with us at these shows. Because, I mean, you've done it. You know how busy you are, mm-hmm. and you've got your endorsers pulling you one way to do signings, and you've got to be here for this, and you got sound check. But he was super, super gracious and gave us a great interview. I, I'll, we'll repost it. It'll be on awesome. our website. Yeah, that'd be great. I did a clinic in maybe Toronto, I think. And he actually came out and this is before, I think before the snarky stuff. And everyone was like, yo, Larnell is here. And I, I didn't know who he was at the time. This is years ago. I just signed with Meinl. And, uh, and I, I got a chance to talk to him and, and meet him for the first time. And he, I was just like, okay, well he can't be that good. No one's that nice if they're that good. Yeah, so, right. you know, it's like, he's the niceness when you're trying to get somewhere. <laughs> and then I and I looked him up. And I was like, "Hey, how are you? How are you that nice when you're already here? You've arrived. You're the man." And then, uh, and man, you know, I'm sure you do the same. We all do it a little bit. I don't really check any likes on Facebook. I don't check any a lot of stuff on YouTube. But on Instagram, I'll be honest. I do go to the likes and just see if any of the people that I follow, because I follow so few people, liked it. I just scroll through, see a couple greens, <laughs> and I'm like, "All right, man." And without fail. Larnell every time and I'm like I know he's too busy to like anything I just put up how did he find the time and uh, yeah I'm, I'm a huge fan of, of his and and for everybody out there please don't limit what Mike and I are saying with his work with Snarky Puppy to him he does so much I mean you'll see him at pretty much every jazz festival there is you'll hear him on R&B albums and, and I mean he just does a little bit of everything what if, if somebody wanted to check him out where would you send him do you think that Pasic solo would be a good place on YouTube yeah I mean we we did like a five or six minute excerpt of it so you get to hear him kind of improvising with the pads and, and the drums oh with the interview too right yeah yeah it's all yeah. in one, one clip so that's a good taste of, of his whole vibe but I mean just go to the the latest snarky puppy stuff and you're going to hear him I mean, I don't know who plays on what tracks. I don't know if we were able to identify that, but you probably can find some live clips. I think it might even be on a DVD uh, that they put out. I'm pretty yeah, sure. the family dinner part yeah. two. So yeah, he's yeah, just he's, great. I mean, just gobble it all up. He's he's one of the best around for sure. And feel good about it because he's one of the best people around too. Yeah. And that's always a plus. Awesome. We'll check out Larnell Lewis whenever you get a chance. Let's get into some candy gear review time. This is a nice, affordable drum set. This is the Thomas Superstar Classic. And this kit, if you are looking on any of your music retailer sites, you're probably looking at about 900 bucks. This is, comes in different finishes, 
And and when I say nine hundred bucks, I'm talking for a seven piece kit. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you guys got, but yep. and this is a maple drum set. And yeah, it looks like it's coming with what uh eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen. Yep. A nice fat six and a half by fourteen snare. And I would assume uh, oh yeah, twenty two by eighteen kick. So if you're yeah. looking for a giant rock drum set, this is it. Now, did you review this or did somebody else review this? No, I did, and it was funny. This this came in right when you had were beta testing your your new website. This is the kit. This is the, the kit. So you yeah. had the blue one. Yeah, the blue. Uh, I totally uh, remember that. Yeah, yeah like you were Duco. you were digging it, <laughs> going deep. On, so the, you're yeah, like was, licks. It was perfect timing because this was in my studio, and I'm like, what am I going to do with seven freaking drums? I mean, I don't even know how to play this stuff. <laughs> And you're like, why don't you test out one of my new courses? I'm like, all right, perfect. I'll do one of the advanced fill courses because I never play fills. So let's see what happens. And it was a oh, lot of so fun. Awesome. I mean, I'd, I've never owned an 8-inch Tom, and the damn thing was cool. I don't know that I'm going to ever add an 8 to my setup. Right, right, right. I mean, I, I think just by logistics of the types of stuff I'm doing, it's a four-piece 99% of the time. But they were really... I mean, you, if you didn't know the price, I would I would guess that these are you know mid level professional drums. They are. I mean, they're okay. they're they sounded great even with the uh, the kind of stock not so great heads. They were just single ply clears. I was able to get a really nice tone out of them. They could tune up different ways. Um, Superstar for people who don't know about Tama, that was like their 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 uh, flagship line in the '80s. Like when guys yep. were playing Tama drums in the '80s, that was the Superstar. So they reissued the Superstar snare. I think it was a Birch snare last year or something, maybe two years ago. And this is just kind of a, it's not the exact, it's not a replica of the Superstar. It's just kind of a, an homage to the Superstar. Right. So these are maple shells. That's some old school badge, though. Yeah, they got the old Superstar badge. The Duco finish is really cool. I mean, I I think it looks great. Yeah, man. Um, I'm looking at it right now in Mahogany Burst. So like I said, it does come in different finishes. You can get it in a um, a black burst, mahogany burst. You had the jet blue. Yep. And then it also comes in, it uh, looks like a cherry wine, which is probably a, oh, it says it's a lacquer. It's not even a wrap. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, these are, I think they're all lacquers. That's but, cool. And yeah, I mean, at, at, at that price for that many drums, I remember when PDP came out with the X7, very yeah, similar. Right. Uh, and that blew me away. And... My thought was, do you need a seven-piece drum set? No. But can you get three drum sets out of buying one? Yes. Yeah, so exactly. could you do 12 and 16 for your rock gig, then maybe 10 and 14 for your fusion gig, and then for – or, you know, I mean, you have so many options here. You could convert uh, the floor time into a bass drum. To a, for a, a bass drum, a, yep. A bop gig. Yeah. So I, I think you have a lot of options and, um, you know, and it, and it has a sustain system. So now sound-wise – just straight up rock and roll drum set? No, I mean I would say it's it's pretty versatile. Okay. It, it kind of leaned more towards um, like notier styles, just with the heads that were on there with the clear ambassadors. It kind of felt like a fusion or a Simon Phillips kind of a kind of a setup. Yeah, very um, chick web. I can see that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean the bass drum is just huge. Eighteen by twenty two. It it's limited in its its application, but right. I was able to get a, a nice big punchy sound out of it. I wouldn't like I wouldn't take this on my super light fusion gig for Friday night. Sure, but right, right, right. But yeah. it's yeah, it was kind of more of a Simon Phillips was what kind of stuck out it like this yeah. tune them up kind of high, and they kind of have that really clear articulate snappy tom sound. 
but they were fun, and I couldn't believe the price. I mean, there's so many great affordable kits out there right now. It's it's, it's mind silly. blowing. My parents would would be very upset to find this out because yeah. I mean, eight hundred dollars in. 1991 did not buy you a lot drum set wise. Like, you would have to get like the Thomas Swing Star or the uh, yeah, and it wouldn't come with this many pieces. I'd yeah, get the, the Swing Star. <laughs> 12, I had 13, yeah, 16. or or maybe if I wanted this many pieces, I'd have to get a Sunlight with a wrap that bubbles off in the in the sunlight. Yeah, but they didn't, um, but they didn't offer tens or eights or nope. tens. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was just tens 12, or 13. eights or tens. Did you just say t- <laughs> tens <laughs> Look, or good. eights? Tens or eights or tens, either one. Uh, well, let's give this thing a listen. Awesome. Well, now it is time for listener questions. So first of all, thank you guys for all the questions you send in. It's, it's just awesome to get to hear from you guys. Keep sending in the audio questions. We will be using those in the future. Uh, so please keep sending those in as well. MDinfo at moderndrummer.com. What do we have first, buddy? First is from uh, Todd Mitchell. He says he's noticed that both of us attach our snare mics directly to the, to the drum. And, yep. of course, a lot of times tom mics are done that way. So he wants to know, do we... If we were going to be recording for real, do we feel that total isolation would be necessary, or, or is there something to gain or, or lose by clipping the mic right onto the drum? Great question, yeah. uh, Todd. Um, good to hear from you, buddy. He was at camp a few weeks ago. So uh, I think it just depends on, on your situation. I, I would imagine that if you had a tripod stand just sitting on the ground, that was booming into your snare that you could possibly get some stuff through the bass drum shaking the floor. So I think it really depends on the situation. Obviously when you track something individually, you can just isolate the tracks and be like, man, there's something going on with that snare drum mic and start to mess with it. What do you have? So you have, I have the LP claw. What do you use? I, on my toms, I use the Sennheiser E904s, which had the built-in clip. It's kind of flexy, so it has a bit yeah, of Yeah, on my toms, same thing. Sorry, I just meant just my snare. Oh, the uh, snare I have. Um, I used actually the, the Big Bang, uh, I don't know what they call it. It's called like a mic mic clamp or something. It's a, it's a okay. metal arm that goes from the snare stand around the drum and then puts the mic in the perfect spot. Oh really? So, so it's like a right. like a gooseneck type. Yeah, like it's is like it bendable? A, exactly. Well, no, it's oh. not bendable. It's just a, oh. a metal preformed it just arm. Works. Yeah, it just puts it right where you need it to be. And That's I haven't awesome. snare drum wise, I've had zero issues with that. I mean, it's the snare rattles anyway, so you're not going to hear any kind of craziness. Um, lately, I've discovered that the it's just a bad cable. Like the the screws on my floor tom mic cable are coming loose. So because it's clamped to the drum. It causes it to rattle. 
Oh, okay. So I'm getting a little bit of rattle with that. I just got to change the cable out, but uh, it probably wouldn't rattle if I had that mic on a stand. So there is potential for it to be a little noisy, but the convenience and just the cleanliness, especially for me working in a small, tight studio, if I had yeah. a bunch of mic stands around, I'd never even be oh. able to get behind my kit. So It would drive me nuts. Yeah. Yep. No, I, I, I'm with you. And the other thing, too, is I think sometimes we get a little too over over obsessive about this stuff. Sometimes you just have to put some mics on and play. Once you get that whole kit going, it's it's really not going to matter. So Awesome. Right. Hope that helps, buddy. Next. Next one is coming from Matt. He's... Um he spent a few years focusing on orchestral percussion, and he's now back into the drum set. So he's been working through your hand speed course, and he's wondering what we think of practicing on a practice pad with larger or heavier sticks to build up strength and stamina. Is it a good mm. idea, or should he stick with the sticks that he usually plays? So he usually plays with 5As, and he's doing pad work with 2Bs. Okay. I, I say you should practice with all kinds of different sticks because it's just going to make you more in, in tune with your touch so i nice. use dom famular's pad sticks here at the office at home i have the vader concert sticks which are maple they're but they're still kind of thick um, i usually play drum set with a 5a or a 5b or a 7a depending and and i don't i don't experience any issues with any of them because i practice with all of them so it, it's yeah for me i'd like having the ability to just use whatever's in front of me Nice. I, I usually practice on the pad with with thicker sticks, but that just goes back to my days of being in drum corps and marching band, and that's yeah. just what we used. We used thicker sticks. But I my mean, thought it, is, my thought is just practice. Yeah, I mean, if I, you just I, want to use honestly, a five A, use a five A. I mean, it's yeah. I think it just comes down to the time, and if if having heavier sticks in your hands gets you on that pad for an extra fifteen minutes a day, then then do it. Just just get on the pad. I don't right. really care. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've never used like I, I saw a study years ago done on baseball players that they could not find any correlation with swinging a weighted bat before in the batter's box. They could not find any correlation that helped improve performance in batting whatsoever. So mm. I think what improves in performance improves in. Pro- Holy crap. What I think improves performance on the instrument is practice in general, no matter what yeah. sticks you use. So, next. All right. This is coming from Mike Stanton. He He's playing a Gretsch Catalina Maple Kit, and his roots are in punk rock. Uh, he loves the look of the Byzant cymbal pack that you put together for vinyl, but he's wondering how they would work for that kind of music. On the flip mm. side, he also loves funk and the meters and Booker T and Stanton Moore style stuff. So would these symbols work for those styles or would you suggest something else? Well, uh, I would say for your second part of your question, yes. The Stanton Moore style, those thin Turkish symbols that I play from Mino would absolutely work. Uh, I think actually when Stanton was here, I, we were both kind of surprised at how similar our setup was symbol wise we had the big bougie 20 inch crash that was very thin uh, and still had some brilliance to it and that comes in that pack and then we had that trashy crash over our rack tom that just decayed really fast for punk rock no uh to be totally honest i don't i don't think it'll work um and even though you're seeing maybe some guys that play a little heavier like matt halpern or matt garska from animals or from periphery and from animals as leaders playing with these dark Turkish symbols, it really, 
it, I, I think it's just not the right choice. I just think it's because they can and they get them replaced for free. But it's I I think I would it would sound better with a more explosive sound, in my opinion. Uh, but the other thing is the amount of work that goes into one of these Turkish symbols. I just don't want to hit them that hard. These are really right. handmade pieces of art. I want to play them at a level where. I want to keep my crash for 15, 20 years. I want to keep my ride for the rest of my life. And when I was when I was playing the, whether you call it punk or hardcore or new metal, when I was playing that stuff, it really was a thing of how fast can I break this? It was like a crappy testosterone bullshiza thing. Like, <laughs> I don't want to be that guy anymore. I, I want to actually love my symbol and be like, man, I remember when I got this in 2009. And it's just the molecules are loosening up every day, and it's getting darker and trashier. So I would say that pack would be great for the second stuff you mentioned, the Stanton Moore stuff, and not so great for the punk. So there's your honest opinion. All right. So one more we've got from Jesse. He wants to know um, if we've ever tried mixing hoops on the same drum. So um, what would be the advantages or disadvantages of putting a die cast on top or maybe on the bottom or whatever? Great question, and I can tell you right now, I've never tried it. Have you? I have. Uh, okay. My, uh, I had a. Well, first of all, I bought um, when I bought my old Slingerland kit, the snare drum. It was a chrome over brass, six and a half by fourteen. Uh, it came with a diecast on top and the original stick saver hoop on the bottom, and it sounded very different than because I had another one of those snares. It's very different than the version I had that had the original stick saver hoops on it. Okay. So it made a huge difference. It, it made the wow. uh, it made the overtones a little more controlled. It made the attack a little snappier, a little sharper, and it just made it feel more contained because your your a diecast hoop is very firm, whereas the the old Slingland uh, stick saver hoops it's you can bend them with your hands almost. So that wait, but did you put diecast on top and bottom? No, just on the top. Oh wow! Of just a diecast really? on top, yeah, of the one drum, and the second drum just okay. had the original hoop. So playing them side by side, it was like the the original hoop sounds like an old drum. It's it's got a lot of funkiness to it. The one with the diecast batter sounded like a new kind of drum. It sounded like a snare drum. Really? Yeah, made a big difference. So then I ended up um, I bought a tie stainless steel, like a, one of their cheap ones, six and a half by fourteen, and they put really thin triple flan hoops on their uh, their cheaper stuff. And that drum just wasn't it wasn't doing something. It was kind of just just splaying. The tone was just kind of exploding all over the place. So I put a, a die cast on the top and it sounds like Dave Grohl now. Made a huge really? difference. Made a huge difference. Um, oh man, that's awesome. I don't know that putting a die cast on the bottom and leaving a triple flange on top, you'll you'll notice any any difference, but it's definitely one way to upgrade your sound or to get most out of one drum is we have a triple flange, a die cast, and maybe a wood hoop. And then yeah, I agree. you can just swap them all out and get a whole bunch of different sounds from one drum. So, yeah, it makes a big difference. Die cast, That's awesome. Die cast isn't my favorite feeling hoop. Right. But if you have a drum that just kind of won't settle into one tone, it's just kind of all over the place, throw a die cast on it. It'll it'll tighten it up. Yeah, man. And, and I do change the hoops. I mean, you, you know, I'm, I'm playing angel hoops on my main uh, right. snare now. I've had I had those cheap bendable single flange hoops, and I and it's like okay, I'm getting this look, but I need to use three Vader buzz kills to shut it down. Yeah, yeah. And then the angel hoops really found that middle balance because it shipped with diecast, and it 
it was just too controlled. And then I went to the angel hoops and that really helped a lot. So I'm, I'm really happy with those. So that's cool, man. All right. Well, let's get into our picks of the week. Do you have one this time or would you like me to go, sir? Uh, I have one. So mine is, um, it might be public domain now, but there's a, a amazing piece of minimalism percussion music. It was written by Steve Reich called clapping music. Yes, sir. Um, no, it's exactly. a piece. I mean, essentially, it's exactly as it describes. It's it's two people clapping. <laughs> uh, so one person plays the ostinato, and then the second person permutates through all twelve variations of that same rhythm over time. It's an amazing piece. Um, you can find you can find it all over the internet. You can find PDFs of the chart as well. But it's, but the reason I like it is you can you can always practice it in a different way. So you can you can practice your independence by having one hand play the main rhythm and have your other hand go through the variations. You can combine them. I know Glenn Kochi of the band Wilco, one of his solo pieces is he's playing clapping music between four limbs, which is wow. absurdly difficult. So he's each limb is is permutating at a different different time. Um, so, and you can just do you can you can change the pulse so it can be it can be grouped as dotted quarter note pulse like a twelve eight or you can feel it as a three four with a sixteenth note subdivision so you can work on your ability to shift the pulse by by changing the bass drum from playing dotted quarters to playing quarter notes or I guess it'd be half notes technically okay and or you could do but you could have your feet one foot playing the dotted quarter note and your left foot playing the the half notes while your hands go. I mean, there's so many bazillions of ways to practice this piece. Um, you could just play the rests. I mean, there's there's it's infinite and it's the simplest piece ever written. Right, it's just one twelve eight rhythm that gets permutated twelve different times. Oh, that's so awesome, man. Yeah, I'm I'm a huge fan. Like. Uh, I practice, I'd say, probably at least once a week along to uh, an album that he did called Music for 18 Musicians. Mm. And it's it's just, it's very freeing. You have so much room to do whatever you want, but they're constantly, they're doing the same thing. 18 people starting the same thing in different parts. And so, but the original keeps going. And while this is happening, it's triggering ideas like, oh, I could do that. I could yeah. do that right now and I'll jump to their version. And then all of a sudden one horn comes in playing this new rhythm. And it's like, I could do that with my right hand. So I have a blast with that. And actually there's a drummer named Joe Arrington. Uh, that's in, oh, what's his band? A lot like birds is the band he's in. He, he was playing in Chiodos for a while. Anyways, he's a Sacramento guy and him and I were actually working on, cause there's no drums. So we're, mm. it's a play along. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Steve doesn't know he's making drumless tracks for us. <laughs> uh, but uh, Joe and I were working on some stuff together where it was like, let's record to this. And there's no drums, and it's so open for interpretation. So, yeah, very he, cool. He's got a lot of pieces. I mean, that's the simplest one, clapping music, but he's got one called Music for Pieces of Wood, which is, it's I think it's maybe eight players, or I can't remember the number of players, but each person has like claves. <laughs> that's, and they just it just adds to rhythms. The nice. classic one is called Drumming. That's probably his his masterpiece where the drums kind of fade the two players kind of phase in and out of time with each other in a very deliberate way and it's it's a for me it's like a, when you, it's like a optical illusion but it's an aural illusion when you hear it it's just like are they are they tearing on purpose or is it accidental yeah. that that's piece awesome. is amazing that's hypnotic all of his stuff he's got the same thing with organs <laughs> where organists are doing this this phasing yeah. concept it's hey man when you have music. a thing you've got a thing <clears throat> yeah it's awesome. Yeah, he's a genius yes yeah, so clapping music my choice 
Uh, check out Glenn Kochi's arrangement off of his album Mobile to kind of hear where you can go with it. Awesome. Very cool. Well, my pick of the week this time is something that you brought up, I believe, last week, which is uh, Aaron Sterling. I know that we kind of overcover it, but uh, it's really good. I, I bought all three of those classes. Right. <clears throat> so my pick of the week is the second of the three classes, which is his first metric modulation class. The first one is on creating a hip-hop track. I thought it was fantastic. We watched all three classes in the last camp. So the campers would come in. I mean, it's only 20 minutes long per class. And we sat down and it was like, look, it's just a different approach to education. I want you to – you're going to get my very structured, very professional approach. I want you to see – I want you to see Einstein in his prime. You know what I mean? Just doing it. Not caring. And so – Watch the first one. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, especially for the people that want to record drum parts. You'll learn so much from that. Uh, the third one, which is his second metric modulation class, master class, is fantastic. But I think it, it might be a little past where most people need to go with this stuff. But the first metric modulation class is brilliant in, in the way that he's really demystifying some of the things that you hear right now. When you hear... Chris Dave play certain things when you hear even Benny Greb, you know, kind of stretch and compress time, obviously going back to Vinnie Caliuta doing it. I think it really makes it a little more tangible to see somebody do it while talking about doing it while explaining, well, here's what I'm thinking. Mm. Cause when you hear it and especially it's on an album, uh, actually there's an album with, uh, oh man, it's called uh, Stefan Harrison blackout is the artist, but it's, uh, Terry Angoli's on that. And, and they're stretching and compressing time with metric modulation all over the place or implied metric modulation. And when you don't see it, it's just magic. It's black magic. You're like, I don't even yeah. want to get into that. But then when Aaron's doing it, and you're like, that dude's like a dude. And if yeah. he can do it and he's talking about it, maybe I can do it. And he is pointing you in the right direction. Hey, start with this. This is what I'm thinking. I'm counting like this. I'm playing like this. And I don't care that I'm not perfect. I just eventually I'll come back in on the one. It'll be fine. And so I just I thought that that second mat. If if you go to his website AaronSterling.com and you see the three master classes and you don't know which one to buy, buy the first metric modulation uh, master class. You'll be very happy with it. So yeah, I liked how he he constantly references having one foot in the original time with the other foot in the other time. <laughs> yeah, and I don't mean one real foot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> metaphorically yeah that's awesome because at first I, I was thinking too i'm like but you're not keeping time with your left foot and then he's like i don't mean my actual foot i just mean keep your mind in the real time you knew you were thinking back that. yeah and i love yeah and i love that he also referenced the fact that hey if i didn't have this piano loop ha- going i probably wouldn't be able to come back to the one i would get lost too so yeah. it's not just having a click it's having a melody that i can follow that keeps me on track phrasing wise because uh, yeah i mean i think we all can do the implied metric modulation for one bar, round it off, nail the one. It's once you pass that bar line, oh, yeah. it's like, wait. And, and then the, the time is just drifting in the background and you can't see it over the horizon. You're like, where was the one? <laughs> so having a, a loop, bass loop, piano loop, whatever, that'll really help. So Yeah, my favorite, I, I think, my favorite part in that, I think it's in that one, is when he's really kind of starting to let loose. And, you know, he's... I love him because he's very careful about calling himself out when he gets a little too indulgent. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he's kind of really letting loose, and all of a sudden he just like stares at the camera. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> like, maybe I went too far. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, yeah, you don't need to do any of that. That's just crap. And and then there, there's like some good 
uh, just tearing himself apart stuff where he's like, I can't even, I can't even throw down anyways. And it's like, yeah, yeah but you just did. <laughs> and you just, you just like made all the campers go like, damn. But it was cool. Like I said, you know, I, I don't want to be the source of education for my students. I want to be one of the sources and I want to push them in different directions and have them experience different people's perspectives. And so I think Aaron's perspective on that stuff is really original. So that is my pick of the week. So, all buddy, right. I will talk to you next week from Ireland. And, Safe uh, journeys. Thanks. And I'm. it's a castle in the middle of nowhere. So our Skype connection <laughs> might be a little shaky. So let's just hope for the best. I will sit right next to the modem. Wherever their Wi-Fi is coming from, I will sit next to it and get cancer for just you. Just send me a smoke signal if we have to reschedule. You got it, buddy. <laughs> All right, man. Everybody, thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. I mean, if I start rating, if you like it, we'll tell people about it. Bingo. Bingo. <laughs> Later, buddy. See ya.